You're listening to the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health podcast series from the Digital Health Council, where we aim to support healthcare innovation by disseminating knowledge of expert leaders at the Royal Society of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Marla Morkin. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health podcast series from the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health Council. So this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Ben Marithapi, who holds an MBE as well. And we were discussing how really, we wanted to know why the NHS Innovation Accelerator really came into being. Where did that come from? What was the need for it? And since that point, how has the healthcare industry really transformed? And what does that look like in the care sector specifically? So Ben is the co-founder and CEO of Sarah Care. But aside from that, I mean, he's a board member of the Imperial College Healthcare Trust. He um, was a doctor himself. He was NHS England's innovation advisor, a founding board member for Digital Health London, uh, expert advisor for the WHO. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I think it speaks volumes because Ben is super knowledgeable about uh, the space um, and how digital health will really be transformed. So I'm really thrilled to share this conversation with you guys. And just remember that all views expressed in this episode are of the speakers themselves and not for the Royal Society of Medicine. So enjoy. So Ben, please give us a bit of background. What has brought you here to the RSM and you know how, um, how have you been building your career in the digital health space? We'd love to hear more. Absolutely. Thanks, Marla, for having me. Um, I think I've been aware of the RSM and part of it for a number of years, and it's a fantastic organization um, that has uh, interesting people sometimes on speaking to it. So uh, uh, thank you again. Uh, as you said, I'm co-founder and CEO of Seracare, and we're a technology-enabled home care provider, um, but I also serve in other roles. So I'm on the board of Imperial College Healthcare, NHS Trust. I'm on the board of Skills for Care. Um, I still work with the NHS Innovation Accelerator and I advise Bain, the consulting firm on healthcare services and digital health as well. Um, prior to this, I spent some time in policy advising Simon Stevens, uh, who's the chief executive of NHS England, uh, specifically around innovation, technology and prevention. Uh, and before that, I was a practicing doctor training in public health. Uh, my first interest and adventure into digital health started um, almost 10 years ago now. So I studied in the US back in 2011, 12, 13, and uh, on the East Coast. While I was there, it became really clear that everyone, it could be a student, it could be a uh, a doctor or uh, a nurse, it could be a researcher or an academic, everyone had an entrepreneurial venture that they were working on at the same time or moved into working full time. Um, the, the spirit of innovation and entrepreneurship was so clear, and that's where I caught the bug, so to speak. Um, and it was amazing to have this really problem-solving attitude where, regardless of what the challenge was that came up, people always had a creative idea of how to tackle it, and a really can-do attitude. And of course, on the East Coast, uh, we've had two students uh, who've gone on to build tremendous companies, uh, Mark Zuckerberg who built Facebook out of his dorm room, and before that, Bill Gates, who, who built Microsoft out of his dorm room uh, at university. And there is something culturally about the US, East Coast, West Coast, and also in the middle, about how they harness innovation, how they build companies, uh, how strongly they believe in the power of entrepreneurship, 
uh, to improve society and to tackle major problems. And after that, um, I became involved with innovation quite tangentially. So I started advising a investment fund on their health technology investments, which includes 23andMe, now a very large genomics company based in the US, um, in addition to other companies and medical device companies as well. Um, I became involved at a governmental and multinational level with the WHO and the Swiss government, again, focusing on innovation before stumbling into a role at NHS England, whereas wholeheartedly focusing on innovation technology. And it's been amazing to see how um, startups, but also multinational companies such as Apple, IBM, and Google are really trying to partner and collaborate with the NHS to solve uh, challenging problems on the front line and make clinicians' lives easier, uh, frontline staff's lives are more straightforward, and of course, transform the experience and outcomes for our patients. Um, and that background focused on healthcare and innovation is something that I think has woven together my many different experiences uh, from different roles. Wow. I mean, this is pretty impressive stuff. And I, and I wonder if you could share with us where, where did the NHS Innovation Accelerator come from? How, how did that come into being? Yeah, so in 2014, uh, that's when I started working with uh, Simon as he recently became CEO of the health service. And the first objective was to try and establish a plan, a strategy, an idea of what we wanted to do with the health service. And that came about in the form of the five-year forward view. And in the run-up to doing that, I was focusing very heavily on the innovation technology and research section. And it became clear that while the health service uh, has pockets of best practice, of brilliance, one thing it, it finds pretty challenging is scaling uh, tried and tested innovations across uh, the, the health system, even though it is meant to be the largest integrated health system in the world. Um, and that's because of a number of challenges that people face, that clinicians, entrepreneurs and others face. But I wanted to really get into the detail and understand what these issues were and build something that was focused on unblocking and tackling those issues. And so the premise behind the NHS Innovation Accelerator was how can we work side by side with entrepreneurs and innovators on the front line, go through the experiences with them of spreading a technology or intervention that works and unblock some of those barriers. Uh, and that essentially was the, the seed, the idea, which is actually came about through a conversation I had with Simon on the train back to London. Um, and then uh, it kind of grew. I mean, um, I brought on certain partners to help establish the program. The AHSNs became very involved and provided a lot of fantastic support. And then we launched uh, some months later with our first cohort of innovators and fellows, as we call them, uh, and supported them in achieving scale and traction and now i think uh the program has supported uh over 2000 partnerships between the nhs and different innovations so it's made some good progress wow wow and what's your been your been your favorite company that's come out of that or any interesting ones that you can share with our listeners i think there are many i mean all of them are great uh, in their respective ways i think a couple that uh, come to mind would be a live core, which has an ECG device that fits on the back of your smartphone uh, and even one that fits onto your watch. And it means that for patients who may have arrhythmias or may have atrial fibrillation, which is very common in this country uh, in older individuals, it, me it makes uh, tracking your heart rhythm so much more accessible and straightforward whilst also using the power of digital to 
connect that information to clinicians such as cardiologists so they can provide real-time support and address uh, arrhythmias or other uh, variations which may come up. And it's a, it's a simple solution, but extremely powerful. And also it brings together a whole range of innovations. So it's a device in that it's a device attached to your smartphone. It's using digital through its app and its interface with clinicians. And it's also using data. So data analytics to uh, formulate insights into changes and abnormal variations in a per person's heart rhythm. So that combination I find really uh, fascinating and especially how impactful it's been. So then how does someone who is, you know, with all this background, background in medicine, practicing doctor, then, then going into the care industry, where does that come from? And how do you transition into there? Because if I remember back to my med school days, we did, I mean, integrate, we didn't really integrate our thinking into the care system much. And so the opportunities, as I see med students that get involved in different healthcare technology companies and bits and pieces, they do very much try and stick on treating the patient in the hospital and apps around that. So, so tell us a bit more about how you got into the care sector. Yeah, it was quite um, serendipitous. So there were a combination of experiences that I had that led me to really want to focus on care and improving it. So firstly, uh, my mother sadly fractured part of her back. Um, so one of her vertebrae and she needed care at home and more support. And going through that experience, seeing actually how backwards the care sector is, how difficult it is to organize care. You don't know who's arriving in the home, what their care they're providing, when they're leaving. It's very opaque. Uh, and um, I'm used to kind of other parts of society such as um, how I may manage my bank account or how I may order some food or how I may use Amazon where it's it's so transparent It's so easy to access everything is at a touch from button. This was the complete opposite and even look working in NHS hospitals and GP practices uh, Some people may cr critique the health service and how far it's come when it comes to technology But the care sector is a good 20 years behind that, right? I mean it is really archaic and I witnessed that and experienced it firsthand at the same time, I was working in A&E uh, at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, and I was starting to see patients, unfortunately, ping-ponging in and out of hospital because they weren't receiving the care they needed in a care home or in a home setting. And these were older people with multiple health conditions, let's say coming in with a, a UTI or even urosepsis uh, every other three weeks. And it was really sad to see that because if these people received uh, the right antibiotics in their own home or the right treatment in their own home, they wouldn't need to end up in hospital. Mm -hmm. And there were some instances where people, of course, did develop sepsis and uh, then had quite adverse outcomes. And given that potentially can be avoided if it's identified early on and treated, uh, it was quite tragic to see that. And that was my kind of my deepest clinical experience into how uh, A&E and hospitals work with uh, the elderly care sector and how important that integration is. And then the last uh, kind of piece of that puzzle was my national experience at NHS England, where during the winter, we saw how, because the social care sector was quite challenged, uh, many, many patients were stuck in hospitals, um, sometimes referred to as bed blocking or delayed transfers of care. And at that point, there were about four and a half thousand people a day who were in hospitals who otherwise could have been discharged. And that's not 
great for them. Uh, there's a possibility of them picking up infections from people next to them. They'd much rather be at home or with their families or, uh, or even neighbors in their community than be in a hospital. And of course that has an impact on bed occupancy in, in hospitals and how efficiently they run. And so putting that together, I thought actually the care sector is one that really needs to be focused on where innovation could be quite powerful in transforming lives of the people receiving care, the people giving care, and of course the NHS in general, uh, which is having to cope with unprecedented levels of demand. And most recently with COVID-19, we've seen how actually the people who've been mostly affected are those in care homes. And quite tragically, uh, there's been a very high number of deaths in a care and care home setting, um, which arguably if we invested more in our care sector and provided more support, and maybe it would have uh, ended up slightly differently. And why, why do you think, why do you think that um, the technology within the care sector has been so slow to adopt and the provisions in the care sector have been so behind everything else? There are a combination of reasons. Firstly, the care sector is extremely fragmented. It's comprised of over 24,000 small businesses run uh, like local enterprises where you've got uh, an individual or a small number of individuals running a care agency or care home, struggling with a range of tasks from recruiting uh, staff to managing kind of operations to working with the NHS and local authorities uh, to of course delivering care itself. And when you're swamped with that many priorities and you're that under-resourced, it can be very difficult to think about what next. How do we do things better? How do we innovate? How do we embrace technology? And financially, some of these businesses are struggling. They're having a really difficult time. Uh, that's become even harder during COVID. Uh, and when you're financially stretched, the last thing you want to do is spend more money potentially on an innovation or technology, which either has an unknown benefit or the benefit kicks in a year, two or three years down the line. And for those reasons, I think people in the care sector have found it difficult to adopt technology. They've also been a limited number of champions, people who've really excelled when it comes to harnessing innovation. And that also stifles the adoption of technology and people's willingness to try new ways of working. In contrast, I think in the NHS, we've been able to look at other health systems, um, be it the partner's health system uh, in Massachusetts or the Mayo Clinic or Kaiser, uh, and a whole host of others where technology is quite being quite successfully adopted. Um, we've also secured independent funding for innovation technology programs to make it a real priority. We've even changed incentives and had entire units uh, dedicated at a national level to focusing on this as a priority. In the care sector, it's been somewhat neglected. I think government now is waking up to the power of technology in care and its ability to achieve improvements across multiple domains simultaneously. As a result of that, uh, technology is now coming to the foreground, but we're still in early days. And, and I'm just looking at, at the moment at some of the awards that your company has had. I mean, this is over 25 awards, right? Outstanding Home Care Agency of the Year, Best Technology in Care, Britain's Health Startup of the Year, Business Insider's Top Health Tech Startups in Europe. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And, and, and I, can you give us some glimmer of hope? What is the future of the care industry gonna look like? If, you know, we look to our retirement in many, you know, many years time in the future, hopefully. What, what do you think the care industry could look like in, you know, 20, 30 plus years time? How, how, is, it, how is it going? 
I think the care sector will evolve in three different ways. One is uh, we will be much more joined up with the NHS or even one continuous service. People don't want to have to go from pillar to post, um, from let's say the gastroenterologist to the cardiologist to the GP to then the district nurse to then their care in the home. They want a holistic, seamless service that's really well joined up. And I think that's where we will head. Integration is the way to go. Joining up services is much more economical and efficient, but provides a transformative service to the people who are receiving it. Uh, secondly, there will be a much stronger degree of modernization. So care will be digitalized. I have a lot of belief in that happening in the long term. Uh, everything from how people are onboarded or recruited to how carers and service users may be matched to th through to back office functions being digitalized and automated so people can spend more time caring than on administrative work through to how we use data analytics. I think AI has a really important role to play in uh, advising carers on what the most appropriate decision might need to be when they're in a home or care home and when they're thinking about what next. I think AI also has a great role to play in identifying people before they deteriorate in their health so that those conditions can be escalated, they can get more care and more healthcare in their home and their care home, and that person doesn't need to end up in hospital. Uh, the focus on prevention is going to be extremely important given that demand for services is only increasing. I think the third way in which the care sector will change is through how it's funded. Um, at the moment, the funding uh, arrangement isn't sustainable because we have about one and a half million older people in this country not receiving care at the moment. We have many thousands of people who can't afford care but are in a situation where they need it. It's, it's a situation that isn't ideal and that absolutely needs to improve. There are a whole host of options that the government needs to consider from insurance to maybe having a specific tax dedicated to social care, maybe um, reallocating funds from other parts of and other pots in government specifically to social care, such as the triple lock, um, alternatively, even blending the funding that the NHS receives with that uh, allocated and earmarked for social care. There are different options where people top up the amount of money that's given by government with their own uh, funds. There are different combinations, but we will need to see that changing for it to be sustainable in the long term. And is there stark inequalities right now in the type of care that people are getting, depending on as you say, what they can afford, or are we seeing that we're, we're neglecting parts of society right now? And, and how can digital health kind of change that, if so? There is variation across the country. I think more than two thirds of care providers, though, are rated good by the CQC. Um, in general, care providers focused on publicly funded work are worse rated than those on privately funded work because privately funded work can be better financed, better rates, and therefore those providers are more able to invest in a higher quality service, which is unfortunate. However, um, I do see that leveling out further as the government invests more into social care. We've seen in recent years, uh, different announcements about more funding being made available for social care providers, partly with the purpose of uh, creating equality in the care people receive. I think the challenge is balancing that with the fact that care needs to be very personalized. Um, in a hospital, we will talk about different specialisms. There's orthopedics, or there's rheumatology, or um, in a primary care setting, there, even, there will be GPs with their own subspecialisms. Uh, care is not just 
one type of service. If someone is receiving care because they've had a severe stroke versus they've got severe dementia versus someone who's recently had a hip replacement, that requires a different type of service. And we need to balance our ambition for standardization and quality with our ambition to really personalize care to the individual who's receiving it. I think that's really interesting as well because it's the personalization of what the patient wants, but also the patient's families as well, right? Like what information do they want? And, and I think back to earlier when you were talking about your own personal experience, I know for me that when I've had family that have been unwell, it's been simple things like being able to track their exercise on, you know, in an app like Strava or something and checking they're getting out the house and just, you know, being able to see their everyday activities to, to be able to, to check in, right? And if the care industry can't even allow that window for us to, to kind of share the insights on how the care is going for the people that we love the most and that we're trying to look after, then, then it's failing us, right? We need to be able to, to keep it a very holistic approach that incorporates a lot of, a lot of um, people's opinions and um, people's wants and wishes. And, and it's good that you've got people like doctors and care professionals that are leading how technology will shape this because um, I think they're the right people that are sitting there, right? It's the, it's the patients and the people that are at the heart of it, the people that see, as you say, in Chatting with Smith's Hospital, you saw the ping-ponging effect and the fact that you get this vision and the voice now go forward, I think will make a big difference. So, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see um, where you guys are going. Is there anything we should be looking out for in the, uh, in the coming years that is a bit more um, exciting for change or anything you should uh, you can tell our listeners to keep an eye out for? I think, um, well, at Sarah, we've announced uh, our ambition to recruit 10,000 people. Um, and that's because- 10,000 carers, do you mean? Yes, yeah, and wow. that's because we've seen, um, unfortunately, how millions of people have recently become unemployed or furloughed um, because of the coronavirus uh, crisis. And while that is you know, extremely unfortunate, there's also a slight silver lining, which is uh, some of these people can easily be trained up and put into the healthcare space where we actually have a workforce shortage. And the care sector arguably has the lowest barrier to entry. Um, it's the most straightforward for people to jump into. They receive the adequate vetting and training. And so through our technology, um, we're really trying to focus on achieving that. So we're partnering with airlines such as Virgin. Uh, we are partnering with retail companies as well so that should their staff not receive jobs as we come out of this uh, crisis and this challenge, um, they can be retrained and they can have real job opportunities in a sector which will value them but also provide them with uh, really valuable work. And uh, that's something we're focusing on. I think more generally for digital health, one thing to keep an eye on is the majority of technologies that have come out and apps and other interventions have focused on people like you and I, um, younger people or middle-aged people, but we're not the frequent flyers or the power users of a health system. The people who represent the majority of utilization of services or the majority of costs even are older people with multiple health conditions or those with severe learning disabilities or other types of conditions as well. And I think the technology sector and entrepreneurs who are outside of healthcare are starting to catch on to that. They're building innovations and intervention that actually focus on the people who represent the majority of the burden and have 
the majority of the conditions that need to be addressed and in turn are the most impactable through technology rather than necessarily the people who are the minority who aren't using services the most because of course the difficulty there is if you only focus on the people who are uh, let's say even millennials using smartphones the most regularly um, you're actually creating inequalities because you're mm -hmm. leaving behind the people who can't use smart smartphones that individual with parkinson's disease who keeps dropping their iphone and so they, they need another device instead so that they can access uh, an app to provide them with cpg services and so that solving that digital divide and actually putting healthcare users at the heart of what we're building so we factor in what their real needs are on a day-to-day -day basis i think that's something that's going to be a real focus in the coming months and years so that's it another episode of the royal society of medicine's digital health podcast series from the royal society of medicine's digital health council i really enjoyed talking with ben today and i hope you guys enjoyed listening to it too if you have any questions regarding it or if you'd like to learn more about the royal society of medicine's digital health council please follow the link in the bio and you can have a look at some of the events and the webinars that are coming up soon as well that you can get involved in thanks so much